The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, it falls to me to give a, an impossible introduction to a man that I know and love. I've been thinking for about two months now how in the world I could introduce you to Dr. MacArthur, and then I thought you'd probably rather hear him preach than me introduce him because I could take the rest of the hour to do so. Uh, I think I qualify as one of the guys who's probably introduced you as much or more than anyone else at different conferences and, and at our church back in Grace. I was, I was saved listening to John MacArthur on the radio in a YMCA, listening to a radio preacher talk about John chapter 8 back in 1979. And I'll never forget that time thinking, who is this man doing what he's doing? I was called into the ministry listening to John MacArthur preach. And I remember actually articulating this thought. What a great idea. What a great idea. During a sermon time to explain Bible verses, what a great idea. (laughs) And little did I know that one day I would work in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel with him. I was able to work at uh, Grace Community Church for 25, actually 27 years, if you count the time as I was in Lagos back in 1981. Um, John's the pastor of Grace Community Church. You know that. He's written over 250 books. You know that. The author of the study notes in the MacArthur Study Bible, you probably hold that. Um, Many ways I could introduce John. Let me just tell you some things that are meaningful to me. You know his bio as well as anyone or you wouldn't be here tonight. He's been married for 50 years this year. I know John, I know his wife, I know their relationship and to be above reproach in that area of ministry is becoming more rare in these days. And John, we thank you for your Example of fidelity to Patricia. He's been the pastor of the same church for four and a half decades. He's preached three times every Sunday, four times back when they were in the gym every Sunday, multiple times during the week for four and a half decades. His stand for the truth of God's word has drawn constant fire, and yet the man has never wavered. He's a loving father and grandfather. How many grandchildren now, John? 15 grandchildren, and everyone who knows him and has spent any time with him knows how important his family is to him. And he's an incredible golfer, I just want to tell you that. I had the joy, and it was put it to my, uh, uh, my office and my uh, responsibility a few years ago to organize uh, an event for John's 40th anniversary at Grace Church when I was serving as his executive pastor. And I I was thinking about, during that time, what the best way to capture John's influence would be, and I went a hundred years ago to a book of mine that I I love by Alfred Gibbs um, called The Preacher and His Preaching. Um, When I left Grace Church, I had the opportunity to have a a Starbucks moment with with my pastor John before I left, and I, I gave him something that was probably not meaningful to anybody else but me because of what it stood for. And it all comes out of this quote from Alfred Gibbs, and he said this, a preacher occupies a far more prominent place in the public eye than those who take no part in public preaching. Therefore, the need for a correspondingly circumspect walk before men. A pocket watch and a public clock both serve the same purpose, to tell time. If a watch goes out of order... Only the owner is affected. But if a public clock goes wrong, many are misled. Thus, a prominent position carries with it a greater responsibility for a consistent life. This will involve merciless self-judgment, separation from all known sin, and sometimes even the denying of the legitimate things in life that the testimony of Christ in the ministry may not be blamed. When John and I had that time at Starbucks, I just gave him a little, it's a, called a railroad watch, it's a pocket watch, just to tell him, when I look at clocks from now on, I think, here's a man who has been thrust into being a public clock, 
And if he went wrong, many clocks could go wrong afterwards. Many preachers would follow a wrong way of thinking, a wrong hermeneutic. Many people in his church could be led astray. And yet he has remained faithful in that allegorical sense to tell the time and to be faithful. John, your ministry and your life have served four and a half decades as that public and reliable clock. Grace Church and the rest of us have really set our example by you, by your theology, by your stand, by your love for the Savior, and by your love for the truth, the worldwide impact of your relentless faithfulness, and I'm reading this because I wanted to say it as clearly as I could, have really no parallel in my knowledge. You have remained above reproach in your life, unwavering in your hermeneutic, and dependable in your exposition. And I can tell you that not a day goes by that I don't sense and feel and know the power of this man's influence in my own life. Please give a Mission Road and others welcome to John MacArthur. I have two immediate reactions. Will you do my funeral? <laughs> and I'm sorry my wife isn't here tonight to hear all of that really good stuff. About uh, actually, I, I am delighted to be here. And um, uh, in any circumstance, uh, to, to be with Rick here at Mission Road is, is a joy. But I'm especially glad to be here because after Strange Fire, I really needed to get out of town. <laughs> and I needed to go far, far away. Um, interesting, um, interesting uh, aftermath is stirring from that conference. Uh, it was something we, we felt like we needed to do, and, um, and we did that, and it continues to have a life of its own. It's been kind of interesting to follow. Uh, but I, I really am truly honored to be here. I have a great love for Rick and for Kim, uh, going all the way back to knowing them before they were married. Uh, Grace Church occasionally throws wives into the deal uh, when young men come our way, and we're always delighted to do that. And John and Mark and Luke, and wonderful to see Luke playing so proficiently the guitar up here. These are kids that grew up in my world and in my life, and uh, I'm equally thrilled that you have Rick here in Kansas City, along with some other graduates of the Master Seminary, even who are here tonight. Uh, we're grateful for that influence as well. Just a little bit... Further back in history, one of the first radio stations we were ever on uh, in the country was uh, Bot Radio in Kansas City many, many, many years ago. In fact, I remember when I was a whole lot younger sitting in the studio with Dick Bot, staying at his house with my wife Patricia, messing around with his boats at the Lake of the Ozarks, and uh, he was an early believer in Grace to You. He was an early encourager to me in terms of radio ministry when I didn't have any idea what we were really getting into, and uh, I think we're still on Bot Radio, aren't we? <laughs> I haven't checked. Okay, good. So the, the, <laughs> the, the relationship is still intact the last time I looked. So, <laughs> uh, But, you know, that, that's a long-term impact. We, we understand the impact of, of Bot Radio here and in other, other places, uh, ranging uh, in the early years from Fort Wayne and St. Louis and even to the West Coast. Uh, we understand how you build a family of... Uh, of listeners, partners in ministry, and people often say to me, I feel like I know you because you've listened on the radio. Well, you do. There isn't anything else to know. Uh, the, you know the good part, the best part, the most important part, the teaching of the Word of God. There's nothing more representative of me than that. One lady met me, and it just blurted out. She said, oh, you look better on radio. <laughs> so I, I just, I need to apologize for the reality, but this is it. What can I say? The typical comment is, oh, you sounded a lot younger. Well, I, I can't do anything about that either. So, um, It is a real delight to be here. I, one of the regrets I have is that the Lord brings uh, men to us and then takes them away. Uh, I understand that. We, we regret that when we lose someone like Rick after 25 years. He is in the very fabric of Grace Community Church. And I will honestly say from the bottom of my heart that much of what Grace Church is is a direct reflection of you. And much of what I am is a direct 
reflection of the impact that you had on me as a faithful friend uh, through all those years. Um, and so I am deeply grateful. And it's always difficult to sort of drop in out of the air uh, in a church and, uh, and know exactly what to say. But if I can just kind of read, uh, you know, what evangelical people are thinking in the world in which we live today, um, everybody is concerned trying to figure out what's going on in our world and what's going on in our country. Uh, I think people are discouraged. Uh, I think people are frightened. Uh, and no matter where I go, there's a certain panic that sets in. Over the last 10 or 15 years, uh, there was a little bit of hope that uh, maybe we could fix America. That's gone. Uh, the, the idea of the quote-unquote religious right being able to do something politically to change the direction of this country has long faded away. Uh, and, and there's just sort of a general discontent and fear and even panic. What's going to happen to our kids? What's going to happen to our grandkids? Where's this whole deal going? How are we to understand the times in which we live? And uh, Rick was telling me as we were driving over here that he was uh, going through the book of Romans. And so uh, I'd like to draw you back to Romans chapter 1 and just talk to you a little bit from my heart uh, and try to give you a bit of a perspective that may... Um, it may help you a little bit. Uh, we're all familiar to one degree or another with Romans chapter 1, and there's a lot there. I just want to start at verse 18 and um, help you to understand what this passage is saying. And again, it's so wonderful to be able to go directly to the revealed Word of God so that we can evaluate and assess anything and everything that is around us or in us from God's perspective, uh, I think we all have had our fill of politicians. Um, we haven't been able to solve any problems, essentially any problems, moral problems or, for that matter, technological problems. We, we can't seem to solve any problems. Certainly the moral and the social problems that we face are way beyond our politicians and educators, and that's evident to everybody. We don't want their perspective. Their perspective isn't helpful. We're weary of it. We've had all that we can take. Uh, the empty repetition of promises has left us all cold and empty. But that's not going to be the case when we look at how God perceives the reality in which we live, and it's here in Romans chapter 1. And I want you to just look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I just want to grab that opening phrase, the wrath of God is revealed. And I want to remind you that when you, when you hear about the wrath of God, you're, you're talking about supernatural wrath. You're not talking about simply consequences that that happened in the world. There were commentators in past generations who, who wanted to, uh, to depersonalize calamity and depersonalize judgment and depersonalize wrath. And it showed up not too many years ago in the openness theology, which wanted to exonerate God from being responsible for anything that went wrong in the world. God is directly responsible, and He is directly involved in His wrath. Now, when you talk about the wrath of God, you, you have to look at several several aspects of His wrath. There is eternal wrath, right? Eternal wrath is what? Heaven, uh, hell, as opposed to heaven. Eternal wrath is suffering, conscious punishment, and torment forever. And the reason it's forever is because the people suffering don't get any better. They're, they're permanently reprobate, and they permanently hate God, and so they compound sin upon sin upon sin upon sin forever and ever, and consequently the torment never ends. So that's eternal wrath. They're, the Bible talks about eternal wrath, the wrath to come. There is secondly eschatological wrath. The eschatological wrath of God is that temporal wrath, the explosion of divine wrath that will come on the earth in the end of the era of human history as we know it, preceding the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That wrath of God is particularly delineated for us in the book of Revelation in the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. And, and essentially, I think you can take those pretty much understanding there are figures of speech as the literal 
devastation and destruction of the, the world and the celestial bodies around it as we know them. And, and as you can add to that the influx of demons released out of hell, and you know the horrors of eschatological wrath, the wrath as human history wraps up. That's God's wrath. There is also, I guess what you call, using biblical terms, sowing and reaping wrath. Whatever a man sows, he what? He reaps. That's built-in consequences. And there's a reference to that even here in Romans chapter 1. There are certain things that you do that have consequences. Um, behaviors have consequences. Immoral behaviors have consequences. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says that there is a sin which has built into it a sin against the body. And he's talking about immorality that leads to venereal disease or AIDS or whatever it is. And that's mentioned here in Romans chapter 1. So there is consequential sin, we could call it, uh, consequential wrath, we could call it. There's also cataclysmic wrath. And we see this in the world. Uh, the ultimate cataclysm in human history up to this point, the the, the pinnacle of all cataclysms was the universal flood, where everybody but eight people w was drowned. Uh, that, that is the ultimate, up to now, cataclysm, which will be surpassed by the cataclysm of fire when the universe as we know it is imploded, destroyed from the inside, and the elements melt with fervent heat, as Peter says, and it all goes out of existence, and it's uncreated, and the Lord brings a new heaven and a new earth. So that, th those would be the epic, cataclysmic judgments of God. But all the way along, there are cataclysmic judgments. It might be a, a Hurricane Katrina. It might be a tsunami uh, in Indonesia with 250,000 people who are killed. Uh, this, this is the wrath of God. This is cataclysmic wrath. You say, uh, is, is it personal? Well, it is personal in the sense that God does it, uh, but, but it is not that the people who perished are worse than everybody else who didn't perish. And that's proven by our Lord in Luke 13. Uh, when they came to him, they said there were some Galileans that went into the temple to make a sacrifice, and Pilate's men came in and sliced them up, and their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifice. They were slaughtered when they were doing what God wanted them to do. They were following a biblical prescription. And they asked Jesus, are they worse than the other people? In other words... Does that kind of cataclysm or that kind of calamity indicate that the people who died are worse than everybody else? And Jesus said, you better repent or you'll all likewise perish. In other words, it's an illustration of what everybody deserves. And then they came back with something that wasn't intentional, and they said, well, what about the tower in Siloam? Maybe a tower uh, basically built to help them build the aqueduct. Uh, in ancient times, and it fell down and killed uh, 18 men, and they said to Jesus, were they worse than everybody else, and that's why they died, and he said the same thing, uh, you better repent or you will all likewise perish. I remember 9-11, uh, I received a phone call the day after 9-11 from the Larry King producers, and they said, will you come on Larry King and explain 9-11, explain the thousands of people who died at the bottom of the towers and in the Pentagon and all of that. And uh, I went on, and uh, I remember when Larry first posed the question to me, I, he said, what is, the, what is the lesson here? And the lesson, I said, is simply this. You better repent because you're going to perish. It might not be now, but you're not in control of when. And that's still the message. So that's cataclysmic wrath. It is the wrath of God bringing about a just death and subsequent punishment to those who have rejected Him. Now, none of those is the point of Romans 1. It's not about eschatological wrath or eternal wrath or cataclysmic wrath or consequential wrath, if you will. This is a different kind of wrath. It is explained to us here. This wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men is revealed against those who suppress the truth. It's, it's a wrath against people who suppress the truth. Now, what does it mean to suppress the truth? Well, it means essentially to reject the truth, whether it's the truth that's innate in man or revealed in Scripture. 
you do know this passage well enough to remember that men are without excuse for the revelation of God that is in them. And then in chapter 2, he talks about conscience, which would lead you back to a moral law and a moral lawgiver. So this, this is the wrath of God against people who suppress the truth that they are given. Uh, understanding God by the patterns of cause and effect, looking at the effects, going back to the cause, the effects, back to the cause, and finally you end up with the first cause, which is God. Every man is accountable to follow the path of human reason back to a first cause. In Romans 2, everyone is accountable to follow the path of reason back to a moral lawgiver because we have a law written in our hearts. So when people suppress that truth purposely and overtly, the wrath of God is unleashed. Now we're talking collectively here. We're not talking about an individual. Uh, This passage is really talking about groups of people. It's giving us a picture of history. And in fact... Um, in Acts 14 and verse 17, this is what we read, a very interesting verse. In times past, God has allowed all the nations to go their own way. God has allowed all the nations to go their own way. This is the constant cycle of human history. They have the truth. It's written in them, both in human reason that leads to God, a first cause, a creator, and in moral law written in the heart, the law of God written in the heart of Romans 2, And when men suppress that truth, God's wrath is unleashed. And the nations do it and do it and do it and do it. It is the cycle of human history. Now, how do we we know that's what this wrath is identifying? The answer comes in the explanation of this wrath, starting in verse 24. So drop down to verse 24 for a minute. Here we see the description of the wrath. The the reasons for the wrath are given in verses 18 to 23. The wrath itself is described in verse 24. We'll go back to the earlier one. Therefore, God gave them over. Go to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over. Go to verse 28. God gave them over, middle of the verse. There you have three times a statement that identifies this wrath. What is this wrath? It is God abandoning a people. It is God abandoning a culture because of their rejection of the truth. God gave them over. And there's a sequence here that I think you really need to understand. You can know when this has happened. You can know when this has happened to any city uh, or any civilization in ancient times, uh, in any modern nation in in the more modern world and even up to now in our own country by just following the pattern here. The first step is in verse 24. God gave them over. And by the way, gave them over is a legal term referring to turning over someone for punishment. So God literally turns people over for punishment, for execution, if you will. And what happens is this. God gave them over in the lust lust of their heart to impurity. The first thing that will happen in a society that God abandons is there will be a sexual revolution. And impurity and lust will dominate that culture. Now, we see evidences of this in other places in the Bible. Do you remember Hosea 4.17? Ephraim is joined to idols. Ephraim is another name for Israel. Ephraim is joined to idols. And then the prophet said, let him alone. You might think that it would say that Ephraim is joined to idols, call him back, warn him. But this wrath had already acted against that generation. Ephraim is joined to idols, they've made the choice, let them alone. That's when God abandons a people. He did it in the days of the prophets to Israel. 
Then when you come into the New Testament, you come to Matthew 14 and verse 15, Jesus says this, they are blind leaders of the blind. Do you know the next line? Let them alone. Wouldn't you think the the Lord would say, call them back, warn them, let them go, let them alone. It's a, a really stark illustration of this in the case of Samson, where Samson thinks he can rise up and defeat his enemies who, who have come to take him. His hair has been shorn, and the Scripture says he didn't know that the Lord had left him. This is the wrath of abandonment. When you look at our society today and you want to do what Jesus told the Jews they should be able to do in the 16th chapter of Matthew, and that is to see the signs of the times. When you look at America, when you look at the Western world and pretty much the globe because it's all so connected, I think in particular in our, own, in our own country, we are experiencing this kind of wrath. Had the truth, knew the truth, proclaimed the truth, upheld the truth, propagated the truth all over this country, all across the world. We were a, we were a source of missionaries for the truth. This country has had the truth, not only the truth in conscience and reason, not only the law of God written in the heart, uh, but we have had the truth written in Scripture, right? If anybody ever had the truth, we had the truth. But we have suppressed the truth. And so God has let us go. And you know when God lets a culture go, because it will be dominated by lust and impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. If anything defines America today, it, it has to be categorically in the sexual area. I mean, this is a sex-mad, pornographic culture. And that's, that's the launching evidence of divine abandonment. So people say, well, you know, well, what's going on in our country? Is the Lord going to judge us? He is judging us. This is what it looks like. Sexual revolution starts with a Playboy magazine, a hippie movement in the 60s, free love, free sex, catapults all the way to this massive pornographic internet that's sucking up the souls of people. That's divine abandonment. Let them go. That's a divine judgment. That's a divine judgment. But that's not the end of it. That's only the beginning of it. Go to verse 26. For this reason, what reason? Because they served the creature, verse 25, rather than the creator. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God gave them over to degrading passions. Now, now we're going to a lower level. And how low is this? Women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Lesbianism becomes acceptable. When God abandons a culture, there's a sexual revolution followed by a homosexual revolution. And the Apostle Paul mentions women first because that shows how debased the culture is. Because in any civilization, women are the last to be perverted because they have a mothering instinct and a protective instinct. Women in this culture have been so literally corrupted philosophically as well as morally that we have lost several generations of women. We understand that. Lesbianism thrives and... and Usually the small minority of homosexuals are women because of this mothering instinct. When you see God abandon a culture, you will see homosexuality among women. Just as a footnote to that, I, I hope you know a little bit of history. 
and understand that the entire feminist movement was driven by women homosexuals. And then in verse 27, he gets to the men. In the same way also, the men abandoning the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Just taking a look at that, you see several aspects. First, men abandoned the natural function of the women, woman. It is unnatural to be a homosexual, utterly unnatural. And by the way, I just want to take that one step further and say, we've got to make sure we control the language if we're going to, if we're going to do anything to help these people. Homosexuality is not an identity. I read recently an article from some people at Liberty University, and they said, we have students here who, uh, who are drawn to homosexuality. We have uh, one of their students, a seminary student, wrote an article that he's a homosexual and attends seminary there. And they said, we want to work with the students who have gender identity issues. That is not an identity. That is a behavior. That's not an identity. You want to talk about identity? Let me tell you what the identity is. You are a sinner. And you are a sinner who sins in a complex way. You have pride, selfishness, greed, anger, and oh, by the way, you have illicit sexual desires and it may be toward a Uh, someone of the opposite sex, it may be someone of the same sex, or you may be confused about that. That, Those are the temptations that you succumb to in behavior. That's not who you are. As soon as you concede that, that homosexuality is someone's identity, there is a hopelessness that settles in. That's not an identity. That's a behavior. Oh, there may be reasons why that's a behavior. It's a line of least resistance for men who can't get a girl or maybe who hate their mothers. But the psychology of it is is irrelevant. It's unnatural. It's not an identity. That's not consistent with being male or being female. Nonetheless, they burn in their desire toward one another. This, you know the history of this. You know that AIDS was basically foisted on the world by a few homosexuals in San Francisco that infected each other and then spread over the globe and took the disease everywhere. You also must know that according to the police reports that I see in Los Angeles, the average homosexual in California has 300 different partners a year. This, this is a burning the likes of which it's hard to comprehend. Uh, there was a man named Halpern who was the coroner of New York City, wrote a book on this. He didn't want to make a moral judgment, but he said, in dealing police work and doing autopsies, I can look at a body that's been murdered and tell you whether a homosexual did it. Because of the abuse, multiple stabbings, etc. It is a passion gone crazy, gone mad. So men with men committing indecent acts. And by the way, they also receive that consequential wrath that comes along with that error, that sin. So when you look at the world today and you say, what is going on? The homosexuals are just taking over the culture. Um, Just understand, this is right on schedule. This is exactly what Romans 1 says what happened when God abandons a nation. God is not about to abandon this nation. He has, and there's the evidence of it. But, but that in itself is not even the final step. Verse 28, and again he reiterates why. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so they suppressed the truth way back in verse 18. Um, they exchanged the truth in verse 25, and here it's described as not seeing fit to acknowledge God any longer. 
God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's a, that's a useless mind. That, that, that's a non-functioning mind. So you, you're always saying to yourself, if you're like me, can't anybody figure this out? Doesn't anybody see where this is leading? Can't anybody stop this? Don't people see the idiocy of this kind of sexual madness? Where are the sane people? And you see more insanity in the universities and more insanity among leaders in the nation. Uh, The whole of America looks like one big Jerry Springer show. Where's the sanity in this? And if you rise up and, and and you try to say, we got to stop this. We're destroying this country with this behavior. They'll silence you. Especially if you say you're a Christian and you start throwing Bible verses around. There's no place in the public discourse for that. So you have perverted minds that people, they don't think straight. They don't think the way you and I think. It's a reprobate mind. It's a mind that doesn't function. Consequently, they do things that aren't proper. The Jerry Springer show, or anything like it, which should cause people to fall down in fear and mourning, is, is comedy. Comedy. Perversion is comedy. We laugh at the things we ought to weep at. The mind doesn't function. Now, here's the problem. When the mind doesn't function, there's no way back. There's no way back. The collective mind can't get us back. The politicians can't get us back. The educators can't get us back. And so what's our culture? Verse 29, filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, uh, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, trust, untrustworthy, unloving, Unmerciful. It's one of those familiar lists of the Apostle Paul just collecting some, uh, some representative sins that characterize a culture that can't find its way back to truth and sanity. And not only do people behave like this, but, but they wear it like a badge of honor or freedom. Verse 32 says, they know the ordinance of God. How do they know that? Because the law of God's written in their hearts. They know right from wrong. It's part of being human. They also know that those who practice such things are worthy of death. But they not only do the same, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. I, I think uh, the immorality is so, so widespread that Homosexuality, sexuality of any kind, and everything that goes with it is so ubiquitous and so overpowering and so overwhelming that people have lost the sense of shock. You know, I I would think that people who come to the Master's College would probably have a pretty good idea about these kinds of things. You'd be amazed how tolerant this generation of Christian students is of this kind of behavior. I did a series not too many months ago at Grace Church uh, on homosexuality. I was amazed at the responses of the, the young generation who, who really had just kind of accepted it because the funniest and most lovable guy on every sitcom is the guy who's a homosexual. We get sucked into that. And if you speak against it, look, that's, that's dangerous stuff. How long will it be before those of us who speak against it lose our tax-exempt status as a church or lose our property tax-exempt status as a church if we don't say what's politically correct? My, uh, my grandson is a senior at the Air Force Academy, and... Um, he was telling me about one of his classes in the middle of all of his astronautical engineering and all of that. He, he was telling me he had to go to this military class, and I said, well, what's, you know, I know you learn how to shoot people and do all that kind of stuff, but 
what's this military class? He said, it's political correctness. So what are you learning in, in this, this military class? We're learning that we cannot say anything against anyone's behavior or lifestyle. We are, we are not allowed. You can advocate anything, but, but you can't confront and deny the legitimacy of any behavior. It's everywhere. They've literally taken over, even though they know the results of these things, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Hearty approval. So, when I look at the culture that we're living in now, I just, I say, hey, the wrath of God is released and here it is, we're seeing it. Why did it happen? Well, you can go back and pick up the what references earlier because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they're without excuse. In other words, they, they were given the knowledge of God, the innate knowledge of God. I mean, it's so obvious, isn't it? How can anybody be an atheistic evolutionist? How can you possibly believe nobody times nothing equals everything? That's just insanity. Insanity. You have to have a first cause. There was a German engineer called Van Neumann. His name was Van Neumann. He, uh, he had an ideological concept of the, the greatest machine that could ever exist. And he said that the greatest machine that could ever exist would be self-generating. Um, self-propelling. In other words, it would be able to generate its own power. Secondly, he said it would be self-repairing. It would, it would be able to fix itself. And thirdly, it would be self-reproducing. It would be able to multiply itself. So, it would be a car that energized itself, repaired itself, and when you parked it in the garage and came downstairs the next day, there would be two more of them sitting in there. <laughs> and he said, of course, this is only concept because it could never happen. And yet we now know that that's, that's exactly what every cell, every living cell is. Self-energized, self-repairing, self-reproducing. That massive, incomprehensible, unbuildable machine from a human viewpoint is every single living cell in the universe. What kind of intelligence does that take? I mean, we, you can make cases like that endlessly. And yet, men reject God. They reject Him as Creator. They refuse to see His invisible attributes in His creation, His eternal power, His divine nature. They are without excuse. And a way to understand that is there's enough revelation of God in nature to damn men. Not enough to save them. They need the gospel for that, right? They need written revelation, but enough to damn them. The problem is when they had the revelation, they rejected it. Verse 21, they knew God. They didn't honor him as God or give thanks, became empty in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, this, this, this is the bottom line. They know God, they know the truth of God, they know the law of God, and in our case in America, we had the written revelation of God since the very founding of this nation. It's all been there all along, and we have rejected it wholesale as a people, as a nation. We don't honor God, we don't thank God, and consequently, we have nothing left but empty speculation, and the light is out. The, the light is out, and darkness prevails. And oh, by the way, we think we're wise, so we give PhDs for people who are stone blind in the dark. But man can't live without some kind of religion, so he invents one, verse 23. Exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Just a quick thought. Um, religion is not man at his best. False religion is not man at his best. It's man at his worst. He has the knowledge of God revealed. 
He rejects the knowledge of God. He goes into the darkness, and then he invents religion. Religion is man at his lowest, creating something in the place of God. In ancient times, it was these kinds of things, worshiping animals, animism. In modern times, it's worshiping whatever the cultural gods may be, and it all really comes down to worshiping self. So if you have a society, and by the way, Romans 1 is, is not talking about one society. It's talking about all of human history. This is the endless pattern of human history. And as you look at the world in which we live, and as you look at our country, you see Romans 1 lived out in front of you. Now that's a pretty depressing message, isn't it? But it's reality, and it's going to help you next time you look at Fox News and hold out some hope. But let me, let me help you a little bit. <laughs> what a bummer. <laughs> Psalm 81, I won't leave you with no hope. Because and, and, I, I want to get to this because this is what matters. And here, in one of Asaph's psalms, is a parallel portion of Scripture. And this is God speaking in verse 11 of Psalm 81. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. Here is a historic illustration of exactly what we see in our country and what we see in Romans 1. So, I gave them over. Same language. I gave them over. I let them go. This is the wrath of abandonment. This is the wrath of abandonment. I let them go. It's reminiscent of Genesis 6. My spirit will not always strive with man. And then the flood came. So I gave them over. To what? Here's the wrath. The stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. In other words, restraint is off. Restraint is off. And God lets a generation go to the consequences and the escalation of their own choices. Let them go. Let them go. But verse 13 is where there's hope. Oh, that my people would what? Would what? That Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. And the blessings would be so great that the people who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him because it would be so beneficial to be obedient. Oh, that my people would listen to me, walk in my ways, Verse 16, he adds, I would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. What's the solution? What's the only answer? To do what? Listen to my word and walk in my ways. So let me ask you a question. Who are the most important people in this entire society? Who are they? The people who do what? Who listen to the Word of God. And who proclaim the Word of God. There's no hope for America in education. There's no hope for America in politics. There's no hope for America in social manipulation, engineering. The most important people in this culture are the people who stand behind pulpits like this and proclaim the Word of God. They're the only ones who have an answer. 
Is it important to train men to preach? There isn't anything more important in the, on the planet than that. Because that's the only hope. What, what is the heart of God? I would satisfy them with honey from the wheat. I'd give them the best. The solution to what's going on in our country, I don't know what God has in the future. I know where we are from Romans 1. But when you hear God say, oh, that my people would listen to my voice. That's the heart of God. And they can't hear without a preacher, can they? That's why preaching is so important. You are listeners, and you are walking in His way. And you, therefore, are the remnant. You are the holy seed, borrowing from Isaiah 6, that will be rescued out of this. Don't fear for your children. Raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It doesn't matter what goes on in the wrath around. The ark of safety is Jesus Christ. Right? You are safe in Him. You're the only ones that matter. People drive up and down this street all the time. They have no idea that the solution to all that's wrong in the world is inside those windows coming from this pulpit and places like that. That's the only hope. So, what does the system try to do to us? Silence us. Shut us down. This is not a time for weak men in weak pulpits preaching weak messages. This is a time for faithfulness and strength. And who knows what God will do. He will honor His Word. One final footnote. This is the greatest time in the history of the world to be a preacher. Because people can hear you all over the planet. All the time. I mean, I I tell young preachers, the good news is they can hear you all over the globe and you can't hide. The bad news is they can hear you all over the globe and you can't hide. (laughs) You better be saying what you need to be saying. We have never... We've never had it so bad in this country, but we've never had such an immense potential to proclaim the truth. You need to pray for your pastor, love your pastor, undergird your pastor, and pastors need to be faithful and bold in the proclamation of the truth and trust that God will uh, give them the opportunity to reach those people who will hear and will believe, and who knows what God may do in the future. Father, we thank you for our time tonight just to think about... Uh, where we are in this point in history and where we are in this country that we love. and We, we know the answer, uh, but, but it rests in your hand to raise up more and more faithful men. And may, may it be impossible for the world to silence them, give us bold, courageous, powerful, faithful preachers of the truth. That's our prayer. Uh, whose lives back up everything they, they say. Lord, we pray that the harder the culture tries to silence us, the louder our voice will become. And may the truth begin to be heard again in all its purity and all its power from pulpits and from the lives of Christians who are also bold and faithful. And all of this for your name and your glory and your honor, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.